Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. Born into a bourgeois family that had enough drama for their own reality show, she created a spinoff of her own and achieved a life goal of becoming the most influential mistress of a king that France has ever seen. Let's talk about Madame de Pompadour. Okay, let's place her into history. In 1721, Johann Sebastian Bach opens his Brandenburg Concertos. The very first smallpox vaccine is administered. The first American insurance agent starts his business. South Carolina is formally incorporated as a royal colony. Elihu Yale, who was a benefactor for the Yale University, died. And on December 29th, 1721, Jean-Antoinette Poisson was born. Just a quick word before we begin. This episode is all about a woman of negotiable affection. There is no way to make this a PG or maybe even PG-13 podcast. Just a heads up, if you plan to use this in um, any kind of educational material, you may want to preview it first and make sure it's appropriate for your audience. Thank you. Jean-Antoinette Poisson. She is the first child of Louise Madeleine de la Motte, and the father of record is Francois Poisson. Um, Let's just yeah. say Maman had an adventurous nature, but since her husband, Mr. Poisson, thought he was the papa, I, in fact, point to the fact that he's probably the papa. Let's just go with that convenient fact. He is the father of record. Yes. Regardless of what these other men do in her life, regardless of all the speculation that surrounds yeah. who the actual father of Jean Antoinette is, let's go with Francois. Well, and, and the funny thing about Mama is she got married to stop the rumors about her bad reputation. So already, the only thing she did though is get married. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah. yeah. uh, uh, Francois um, traveled. Quite a bit for his death. Oh, yeah, yeah. He was gone. He had a very good position with these two brothers who, between them, um, one was the, you know, court banker, the main court banker, and one was the army supplier. Basically, the king had to depend on him. Anytime he wanted money for anything, Mm -hmm. you gotta, had to go through them. They weren't noblemen. They were part of the bourgeois, this new class of people with all this money and this really practical approach to life. They right. weren't aristocrats. They mm-hmm. didn't have this history of noble behavior, but they were smart as a class, for mm-hmm. the most part. Having right. been self-made men, a lot had to pass through their hands. Right, and he worked for them. Yeah, Papa had some wealthy bosses. <laughs> yes, and influential. Yeah, bourgeois is actually defined by Merriam-Webster as of the middle class, concerned with material interests, respectability, and mediocrity. So Papa and his family, now including a little brother named Abel, lived in a very nice area of town. But great scandal when little Jean Antoinette was four to do with this underground black market grain scheme. There'd been this series of cold, wet summers. Grain was already light in supply, and there's some subterfuge and some fast dealing, and it led to a famine in Paris. It's a big deal. Well, the thing is... Someone's going to have to take the fall for oh, it. Oh, yeah, and it's it's Papa. He seems to have been made the scapegoat, I think. I think so. And maybe that was part of his job responsibilities because he didn't actually 
I mean, he was separated from his family for quite a while, but he didn't suffer. No, he didn't face any um, criminal charges. But he's gone. He's gone, leaving Madame Poisson to hold the bag, literally the bag, holding all the money that creditors kept reaching their hand in. Right. I mean... But if anybody has to hold it, it's Mama. Well, after a few months, though, they lost their house. The they house did. was sold and the contents. It's not like today where they foreclose on the house and then you're allowed to put everything in a truck and drive away. Right. No, the no. stuff goes, too. Yeah. Now, when Papa had to abandon them to go to Germany, though, here's what he said of his wife. This pr- He knows. He knows the deal. He said, she's so pretty, she'll fall on her feet. Well, that seems like some rickety foundation to pin all your hopes on, but in this case, it worked because, enter the aforementioned Monsieur Le Normand de Turnham, former ambassador to Sweden, friend of Papa's bosses, fat, jolly, rich man, who may as well have been Santa Claus, frankly, because he swept in. Right. Let's just call him stepfather. That's, that's easier. Great thing and that's him. his role when he's good. Figure. He fell in love with yeah. Mama, yep. took everyone over, he was the head of the household, and Mr. Poisson, real Papa, totally fine with this. This is France. This is a civilized place. Whatever. I'm in Germany for quite some time. <laughs> so interestingly, right here, our research diverges. Yeah, well, this was kind of interesting because we don't usually sit down and talk about what we found until we turn the microphone on. But this time we did, and we're like, oh, this happened. And then Beckett said, well, that's not what I see. So we have a couple different versions. Yeah, which is fine. Yeah, which is fine. And this isn't actually even that major of a, a factoid here. No, they're just minor. So but. either she did or did not right now at the age of four or five go to a convent where her family had some adult relatives who were nuns. Just outside of Paris. Yeah. Run by the Ursula nuns. Yeah, Whichever. was she there for four years or was she there for a year? She yeah. was there for a bit. Educated well. The whole point of the Ursulines, nuns, their whole school was to teach the girls to become good mothers in this particular class. Isn't that kind of funny, though, that you've got nuns teaching girls how to be good mothers and wives? Yeah, but these are the Ursuline nuns. Worldly, is it? Yeah. Oh, okay. Go to New Orleans. Okay. Ursulines are big in New Orleans. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, so the nuns are they, are, they adore our little girl here. She's very charming. She's pleasant to be around. She's very smart. Well, and I know um, however long she spent there, either it's in her character or the nuns put it in there. I don't know which, but she was very truthful. She's known for being truthful. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, some say tactless if they're not on her side, but truthful is right. the way I'd go. Um, if she said something, you can depend on at least the fact that she believed it was true. Right. That last year in the convent, though, mostly she spent seriously ill. She had a series of serious illnesses, whooping Mm -hmm. cough, scarlet fever, sore throats, headaches, and that's the last year of the convent education. And now whether that was the cause of her recall or that she was now nine and old enough to be prepared for marriage. I know. know. That's really hard for us to get our our brains around, Mm -hmm. but... It's not uncommon at this time. You may be married at 12, my friend. So, you know. So she was brought home for finishing... And I can only imagine the life of a much-loved little girl with plenty of money and very affectionate parents. Honestly, I would say her life was probably quite calm and nice. I would think so. Yeah, she had a typical lady's education, sort of. Um, 
Detournum Sapapa spared no expense. No, he had the the opera singers coming to teach her singing. And he had actors, famous actors, act- coming to mm-hmm. teach her acting, which is not a common thing to be taught necessarily uh, yeah. at all. But it's that, the God thing might not have stuck with her, but the acting thing definitely acting did. Yes. But you know what? She was also kind of a scientist, which is interesting. She was she had become an expert botanist and gardener, and she was a natural history buff. She collected rare and exotic birds. It's so interesting that there's that scientific element as well as, and she was taught to drive a carriage and was known for being relatively reckless at times. Dashing. So Mama was intrigued, as we all are, by our children as they develop and wondered what on earth is going to become of this smart, intelligent, beautiful child that is so dear to my heart. Well, where do you go to ask about the future? Let's go to a fortune teller. She works at some big box to go to a very reputable fortune teller named Madame Le Bon. And the fortune teller looks into her life and predicts that someday she would be the mistress of Louis the Fifteenth. Now, see, that's where my research diverges too. Really? Because tell and, me. And I quote: several of my sources say, not so specific. One day, this girl will reign over the heart of a king. What king? We don't know. You know what I mean? Like it's right. not specified. Really? Which king? What king? Hmm. Who knows? But it's a measure of how seriously the family took this, frankly, that they started to call her Renette, which means little queen. Again, that's where some research differs. They had the family calling her Renette from very early on. The thing is about children of that era, so many of them died, and, you know, you're not going to, there's no Facebook, you're, you're not going to document, you don't have a thing on photo bucket to cover mm-hmm. every instance of their lives. <laughs> a lot of children, unless they were royal... They were children until they suddenly appeared when they were adults, and then, then things happened to them. Mm-hmm. So I'm not surprised at all that a lot of our research is like, she was called Renette from the day she was born, she was called Renette later, you know. Yeah. But one thing they did call her after this fortune teller made this prediction, un morceau de la roi, which means a little morsel for the king. Gross. Ugh. Hate that. So the, I'm going to look into the beautiful face of my nine-year-old daughter and call her a little morsel for the king. A morsel, just for short. You're going to call your daughter a little morsel. But mama, that was her thing. So to have a daughter that was going to rise up to such a lofty place, it's like toddlers and tiaras, mom. Her parents always had artists in the house. These people were middle class, but very upper middle. Like Kate Middleton, middle class. Mm-hmm. I guess I should say, she was brought out into society. She was the toast, honestly. Over and over, people say things. Even people who didn't like her later, honestly. They say things like, it was impossible to be prettier. She outshines everyone of note, though some were very beautiful. Her whole person was halfway between the last degree of elegance and the first of nobility. And strangers not privy to the prediction often said, well, she is fit for a king. Okay, must I'm be fates. Speechless, yeah. <laughs> no, it's interesting, though, that her brother Abel is on record as saying there are no pictures but two that he thinks look anything like his his sister. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because lots of people have said that it was kind of impossible. Her prettiness wasn't bone structure. Her prettiness right. was, there are some people who just don't photograph well. Right. Uh, they're well, too roundy, mm-hmm. you know, and no planes in their face. Mm-hmm. And, and even Madame de Pompadour agreed with her brother, and we'll have to post a pictures of the two she thought looked like her. Mm-hmm. I kept reading over and over again that her, the color of her eyes was very unique. It was not blue, not gray, not 
black. It was like Elizabeth um, Taylor. Yes. They said purple. Like, she had these purpley eyes that would turn to gray and hazel and... Depending on the light. So, her whole life so far, uh, any alliance with the king, not very likely. She cannot mm-hmm. be presented as a bourgeois. She... He had nope. a mistress already. Uh, she was single. You know, there had to be a husband for you to be a mistress. Ironic. Really? So it's time to marry, one way or the other. You know, if you're going to get with real life or fantasy life, either way, you need to have a husband. It happens. So real papa's back, though not troubling to break mama and step papa up. Everyone's perfectly happy tumbling around together at, uh, in the same facility. I, that's good. Good for them. Yeah. Okay. So here's the trouble, though. Her parents were seen as detrimental to mm-hmm. her success. Her papa, of course, with that taint of shoddy businessman, you know, he'd taken the fall, and he had no pretensions at all. He was a rough diamond. He was a rough diamond. And Mama was very pushy and had her own reputation. And had had that adventurous girlhood Mm -hmm. that is acceptable at this time in a married woman, but not so much in a maiden, shall we say. But... She was brash and, and loud and beautiful, but detrimental. Yes. And so, um, you know who they remind me of? Remember oh. that scene after Rhett and Scarlet have their baby, where they're trying to, like, make nice to the dragons of society? Gret's been a rum runner and a black marketeer, and, uh-huh. you know, he's a rough diamond. Yeah. With a very attractive profile. And Mama is beautiful with a bad reputation. And now they're trying to fix it so their daughter can have a nice life with society. That's exactly what this reminds me of. Rhett and Scarlet. Can I applaud? That's fantastic. Okay, yes. So, but what Bonnie Blue Butler did not have was a stepfather with deep pockets and an unmarried nephew. So his nephew, let's just call him Monsieur Lenormand d'Etiole. So excuse me if I sometimes say Etoile because it's so close. It is. Etoile means stars and their name is not of the stars, although that's fabulous. It's Detiole, which refers to an estate that they were given, and it became their last name. Mm-hmm. Nephew was a bit reluctant, but he overcame his objections quickly when all of a sudden there was a huge dowry that came out of the pocket. And you know what? You both can live with me. All expenses paid. I'll even pay for your servants, in fact. And not only that, when I die, I'll just give you all my money. Okay. <laughs> okay. I I'll guess. marry her. I guess that's a good package. Plus, she was beautiful. Plus, she was intelligent. Yeah, why Why wouldn't he? So, she is married, and it became sort of a love match, at least on his side. Yes. And for hers, she said she'd never leave him except for the king. How much of a joke was that, Miss Morceau de Roi? <laughs> okay, yeah. Right. So, that's she it. did tell him. I'm yes. just saying, she did tell him. <laughs> she warned him. She said this could happen. <laughs> so, meanwhile... So, meanwhile, the king is working through this series of three sisters, as his mistress is. Uh, there's not an opening for a professional girlfriend right now. Mm-mm. So, it's time for <laughs> Madame Detiole to settle into real life. And so, after the unfortunate death of her first son, her first little baby, her daughter, Alexandrine, was born when she was 23. She settled into the life of, uh, put your back of your hand to your forehead here, Young, rich, beautiful, popular, intelligent wife and mother. Sounds good to me. But she's having these these salons, and she's mm-hmm. doing she's going around and hanging out with you know just some guys like Voltaire in Montesquieu. <laughs> yeah, but all of Paris did not come calling. No. The philosophers came calling, but all of society was still holding back because of Mama. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I have to wonder. I mean, are the philosophers seeing how bright this woman is? Is that what they see in her? I'm pretty sure at least Voltaire does. He 
I have a stormy relationship. I think he recognizes her abilities. Yeah, certainly. Voltaire does, at the very least. They stayed friends a long and, time. And the homes and the, the society that she's invited to, they all seem to like her. Intelligence is valued in, in the bourgeoisie because mm-hmm. that's how everybody got there in the first place. This isn't right. inherited wealth for the most part. This is papas who struggled through and made it stop pulling. So yeah, she was in the right she was in the right social class she, absolutely. for her attributes right there. So sadly, Mama contracted cancer and she retired from society and after that unfortunate event, I'd opened the door for young Madame Detiole. She was an honored guest now. So she had the philosophers coming to her house and she had all of Parisian society. She went everywhere to the point where her name, her description, made it all the way to Versailles. The king knew of her by name. That's and soon he key. knew of her by sight. Yes. Because there is a hunting lodge near Choisy and only families that were noble since 1400 were allowed to go on this hunt. But there was an exception. Neighbors, if they wanted, could watch the hunt go by in their carriages. What a coincidence that she lives right there. So old girl began appearing, stalking. In the woods. (laughs) Yeah. With fabulous dresses and new carriages and her daring driving. Shiny. Yeah. So the king knew her by sight for kind of a long time, and he would sometimes, after the hunt, send the product of the hunt to her house. You know who else saw her by sight? The king's mistress. Mm-hmm. So she's the third and last of the mistress sisters. Madam, I know mistress sisters. Madame Chateroux put her foot down. No more accidental appearances. No, done. I forbid it. Well, now what are you supposed to do? Well, unfortunately wow. for Mistress Three, but greatly to the benefit of Renette, the king's mistress died. And the rumor went out that he was sick of aristocratic mistresses, and he wanted a change. Which is really sad for the fourth sister in the family, because she I was up. another sister. Her quarter was <laughs> up. She was having dinner with the king. Yeah. And he's like, mm. I'm kind of getting tired of this thing. We need some fresh meat in here. I know. Man, sucks to be sister number wonder four. where we can find some. Like, Maybe in the woods. <laughs> okay, now, this is hilarious. Okay. Like, when Prince William of England, Prince William went to the University of St. Andrews, and female attendance went up, you know, 40%. Right. The ladies of the middle class flooded the mass balls in Paris. That's the only place that a bourgeois could meet said man. They couldn't be presented. Right. So all these <laughs> screaming at beavers. It was definitely beaver fever <laughs> for the king. Now, here's another stroke of luck, though. The Dauphin, the king's eldest son, was to be married to a Spanish princess. And so there was another series of balls throughout February, and the king was seen... Dancing with the same woman again and again. Mm-hmm. But the last ball on the 25th of February was to be the real beginning. All Everyone came in fancy dress, which for we Americans means a costume party. <laughs> but the king was determined this time to be unrecognized. Did not feel like being mobbed. So he determined with seven of his dudes that they're going to make the most unrecognizable, self-obscuring costume they could think of. And all eight of them were going to go as the same thing. And what did they choose, Susan? They chose a yew tree. Which is a topiary. It's, yeah, there's there's a painting, and we'll try to get get it up for you to see. Um, and there is a link that I'll, I'll give you that you can get a close-up picture of this meeting. And a lot of things that you'll read, it sounds like they met at this particular ball, which is not, obviously is not the case. Mm-hmm. They, he knew of her, and they had danced. I mean, they have been seen together previously, although not officially, 
Mm-hmm. Which one is the king? Well, you know, they fooled at least one lady who chose her yew tree and buttonholed him and started doing the, the trick. And, oh, well, sucks to be you. Because <laughs> at the unmasking, real king, real yew tree, yes. is across the ball with who? Our friend. Our friend. So, yes. um, so our friend knew which one it was, probably because the yew tree that hunted her down. Yeah, I was going to say, the, it's the yew tree's responsibility <laughs> yes, to make himself known. That's right. And he yeah. certainly did. So begins the appearing at Versailles. And everyone is like, she's appearing at Versailles. No way. Is he going to make her the maîtresse en titre? Well, she can't be because she's not titled. And that position ought to be reserved for... And then fill in your name here, because everyone had a candidate. Everyone had, you know, a sister, uh, a daughter that should have held that position. It should have been a noble woman. But the king even held back kind of a little. Like, would he be embarrassed? I mean, he liked this lady, but did he really want to mess with this hurdle that, I mean... Still, you know, he was very attracted to her, both her person and her, her mind, too. Right. She had a secret weapon, though. You know, like in the West Wing, there's that guy, Charlie, that's always with the president. He has no influence overtly. Mm-hmm. He has no power. Mm-hmm. He's called the body man. He's there to take notes, you know, remind him of stuff. Okay, guess whose cousin was one of the body men to the king? Whose cousin could it possibly have been? <laughs> so the cousin was singing her praises on the DL. Um, and, you know, you can pour poison in someone's ear, or you can pour, you know, sugar water in someone's ear. And I think that helped the king overcome. Yeah, I, I'm sure it did. But, I mean, he wouldn't have been. He could get beauty anywhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the king of France mm-hmm. we're talking here. And he had there had to be that X factor. And you know what? That's a lot of the women that we talk about. They have that X factor. There's something that just makes them memorable. And unlike so many of our subjects that we talk about, this lady did not have a bad childhood. Mm-mm. She had everything that she was raised to have with the exception of the one thing that the fortune teller told her she was going to have. So, well, so here we are at The Verge, and simultaneously, Step-Papa sent old unsuspecting husband away on a business trip, and by the time he got back, he received the very unwelcome, out-of-the-blue news that his wife was about to leave him for the king. Oh. Completely blindsided, as your husband mm-hmm. would be, had he come home from work and received that information. He had no inkling at all. Even though she told him. Poor old guy. But he lost He lost his mind. He lost his mind. He actually vomited from this shock. Yeah. Maybe he fainted. Maybe. But anyway, um, yeah, he stayed friends with her brother, mm-hmm. and she stayed friends with his sister. But Monsieur and Madame Detiol never saw each other again. Mm-mm. So now is a good time, I think, to take a break. That's the journey to Versailles. And when we come back, we are going to talk about her life as the new maîtresse en titre of the King of France. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. You can download a free audiobook today by following the Audible link on our website, thehistorychicks.com. There's over 100,000 titles to choose from over all types of literature to play on your MP3 player or smartphone. And we are back. Our friend Jean Antoinette is just about to get into Versailles. She has lived her life getting ready for this moment, and it is about to happen. But there's been a hole in her education. A big hole. The Versailles hole. Yeah, there's innumerable little rules and traditions, hundreds of ways to make a fool of yourself. 
hundreds. <laughs> so, you know, like, who had to, who had to stand up? Who could have a folding stool? Who could have a regular stool? Or, who got a back to their chair? Hmm. And, were you allowed to sit with your cushion straight? Or were you supposed to have yours crooked? Who knows? Well, you know, everybody does, is the thing. So the king sent Madame Detiole to Versailles High. Versailles High. Definitely. Yes. Princess school. You know, just like Kay Middleton had to take, or Anne Hathaway in that movie with the princess. The and princess? The, Julie Andrews was the queen of... Javania. No, wait. Genovia. Thank you! Oh, good that job. brain cell... Never That's thought it'd have to work again. Wow. It's come out of retirement. Impre- yes. <laughs> so our friend is being, who's already very witty and charming and polished, is getting super duper polished. Well, two courtiers that the king trusts came to her estate at Etiole to give her lessons. A court living priest, mm-hmm. the Abbe de Berny, who comes up later, and one of the king's inner circle that could be trusted to steer her right. He was not going to sabotage her. Right. The king trusted, okay, you know, I love this woman. Please take care of her. Make her so that people don't laugh at yeah. it when I bring her here. Right. And you had to know things like, okay, so what was people's ranks at birth? Who did they marry? How far back does that title go? Do they have some link to the princes of the blood, which would require this whole other level of privilege? Like You had to know all that stuff by sight, too. You didn't get a paper. People didn't hand yeah. you a title on a card. Oh. I always think of it like uh, on the red carpets, you know, the stars have... There are people whispering to them who the person is that's walking up to them. Mm -hmm. And they have to know who those people are. Well, even the language was different. Like, the Devonshires had that, Mm -hmm. the secret words, the little drawl. Even words for different things could mark you as not belonging there. Right. It was a minefield. (laughs) And she was very bright, and she caught on. She did pretty good. So Voltaire invited himself up, you know. Her bestie. I think that he was more interested in her elevation. He wanted to make sure he was in good. Right. With his friends. I don't know. I think he enjoyed her company. Oh, no, he totally did, oh, yeah. but he was ensuring his himself. I actually, in my head, I see him, like, kicking back on a settee someplace, maybe with a beverage in his hand, watching her go through all these and making, like, little comments. And cracking up. Yeah. Like, oh. Like, that is ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I totally see that, too. Yeah. Like, maybe getting kicked out of the room a couple times by irritated tutors. Right. Yeah. But I think she would probably need him to balance it, everything out. Yeah. Because that's the ex- enormity of the information that she had to take in in a not a very long period of time. Yeah, How long was she It was, she was only four months. Four months. Yeah, the king was on, um, he was off on a campaign with the Dauphin, one that almost ended both of their lives, frankly. But they did come back after four months, mm-hmm. so that was good. And... She got a letter, and it was not addressed to Madame d'Etiole. It was addressed to Madame la Marquise de Pompadour. They scurried around to find her a title, because for her to take this position in Versailles, she needed one. And so the king's people found a title that wasn't being used. She moved in on September 10th. What a year. Seriously. Oh, yeah. In February, she was dancing with a tree. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and now she's at Versailles. So our girl now, the Marquise de Pompadour, moves into Versailles, and she is in an apartment that is connected to his by a staircase. Mm. A very high position. Yes, definitely. But first we have to get through an ordeal. The presentation at court. Now that she has a title, that's what you have to do. And so first the king. Awkward. I think maybe his red-faced majesty has seen this Marquise before. (laughs) I think, maybe. Maybe in 30 pounds less clothing than she has on right now. Hmm. But impeccable. 
Mm-hmm. Fabulous. Everybody's mm-hmm. looking. I can imagine she's shaking like the Dickens, so I hope she doesn't have clankety earrings on. <laughs> now, if you thought that was bad, now you got to cross over to the other side. It could be presented to the queen. Yeah. So a word about this queen. Yes. Mary Lezinska um, was the daughter of an exiled Polish king. She was always a long shot for this marriage in the first place, and she'd already given the king ten living children. There was a stillborn child, too, so eleven children. Right. So she did her job as yeah. queen. And she had gradually retreated into this parallel court. She was kind of boring, kind of dull by all accounts, and still I think she was pretty kind. I'm pretty sure she felt sad about these series of mistresses, but, you know, resigned to it. She wasn't mean or spiteful or anything, just really not glittering. No. But she was the queen. But she was the queen and deserving of some respect. So, oh, is the crowd thick up in here. Everyone that could excuse themselves from the presentation to the king was over here trying to catch a sight of the fireworks that were going to go on over here. They were holding their breath. They could barely stand it. Yes. They're so excited. This is going to be spectacular. They're going to be able to talk about this for months, right? But... I don't think so. Now, was the queen messing with everybody? I want to say yes. Because what did the queen do? Because everyone expected her to be this very cold, like, one-sentence chick, you know? Like Marie Antoinette did with Madame Dubarry. There mm-hmm. are a lot of people at Versailles. Yes. Goodbye. <laughs> but no. What did she do? This kind queen, who was probably messing with everyone, she mentioned a known mutual acquaintance. And started to talk about her, which was very kind, because then you could respond, and it was familiar, and it was nice, and she was putting her at her ease, and the Marquise, the new Marquise, was just completely surprised. She didn't expect this to go so well, and she started to cry, and she replied that she loved her queen, and she sought to earn her respect, which is something no aristocratic woman would lose her cool at all, and kowtowing to this queen that no one cared about. Who cares? But the queen talked 12 sentences everyone counted. (laughs) So they are all very disappointed. And that's a big deal. So that was the queen's big finger to the court. And also relieved, this one seemed respectful. The three previous, the sisters, the Mm -hmm. mistress sisters, were mean to her. They snubbed her. All the time. And so she said, if there must be a mistress, let it be this one. Rolling with it. So the court was rolling their eyes at this whole, he is going to get sick of this ridiculous family all everywhere. Abel was always there. She always had people come and buy her cousins, her sister-in-law, all these people. Who are these people? He is get, This is going to be good, too. He's going to be sick of these people. Let's just wait. We're not going to wait very long. But he loved it. He had been orphaned at five. He was in the shadow of the Sun King. Literally. That was the king before him. No way to live up to that you know, grand all. thing. He had been basically alone. Even his regents died when he was in his teens. And so this really, this dunk into this close family atmosphere was almost like a cozy blanket that mm-hmm. came over him. He loved it. In fact, Abel was there so often, and she called him Frero, which was a nickname that basically means Bubba. You know, like a brother. Yeah. Bubba. yeah, it's like a familial. Yeah. yeah, and so he would always call him the T-Frere, which means little brother. Right. The king of France (laughs) is calling you little brother. He also had this series of rooms, um, workshops, Mm -hmm. I guess, really, where he could pursue any number of things, baking, gardening. He loved to grow vegetables and fruits and, you know, herbs and just putter around on the roof, basically, with his little things. Um, Which is so not the kingly, I mean, we just imagine, you know, him all dolled up in his... 
finery on a horse heading off to mm. people, many battles. Yeah, <laughs> but people were not allowed in these little cabinets. They weren't. Mm. It was, this was for the family, and so the fact that her family got to march in and out of there was pretty offensive to the people who thought, no, I have this rank, therefore I have the best thing. It's like the Clampets, you know, Ellie Mae. <laughs> Showing up, it's and exactly they let her in. <laughs> like the clampets. That is exactly like the clampets. Especially Papa. Okay, so the first political move she ever made, there was friction between the Paris brothers, remember? Bosses mm-hmm. of her Papa, right. friends of her stepapa. Friction between them and the Controller General. And suddenly, the Controller General was dismissed. It could be nothing. It could be nothing to do with her, and probably was. But everyone laid that at Madame Pompadour's door. And the eyeballs got kind of big, like, rot row. We thought we'd be laughing at this woman, and I'm not laughing anymore. Yeah. I think we might have to be a little nicer, at least yeah. a, on the outside. Follow the queen's lead, perhaps. Yeah, so that was good. So, the poor Dauphine, wife of the Dauphin, died during childbirth, and frivolity had to come to a complete halt as the court went into deep mourning. And what that leads to is a bored and restless king, which is no good for a mistress at all. And she accidentally... Like, desperately, I think, in desperation, hit upon one of their greatest pastimes together. The other greatest pastime. Architecture. He'd given her a house, and um, she was having it redone, and the king kind of came to this house to divert himself and found all these projects exhilarating. Could not leave the workmen alone. Imagine, if you're a workman and behind you is the king. The king watching everything you do. Like, what are you doing? Why do you do it that way? How does that go up? Where did you learn your trade? Did your father do this too? It's like, oh my God. (laughs) Abel and Madame Pompadour and the king used to divert themselves for hours, redoing, planning, gardens, houses. Um, they did the Place de la Concorde, the Hotel de Reservoir, uh, innumerable other chateaux and gardens and pavilions, including one called the Hermitage, or L'Hermitage, L'Hermitage. where the flowers were changed every day. The flowers in the ground. The ground. <laughs> that's, yeah, as a gardener, I'm going to tell you, that's just crazy. It's funny that she would say about her expenditures... She would say, he has no problem signing for millions, but he hates it when little sums have to come out of his purse. And that she knew this. It was kind of like a wife, even though he had an actual technical wife. This is really the role. She also collected art, and unlike the aristocracy, paid for it when it came in, which is yeah. not something that usually happens. Uh, so that was good. She was a great patroness of the art, and if the revolution hadn't happened, these all these things would have been good investments for France. So many of her houses and her art got destroyed during the revolution, which is really bummed out. But those two hobbies alone, architecture and art, you know, since they were so public, gave her this reputation for spendthriftery. Um, the one factor that didn't go so well was ostensibly the main reason you think of a mistress. Yeah, they really didn't have a physical relationship for, I mean, in this time span they were together. They're together 20 years, five years. They have that conjugal visits. Yeah, Louis was all about the bedroom, and she did try to please him, but it wasn't really part of her nature. She is quoted as saying, I'm terrified of not pleasing the king anymore and of losing him. You know, men attach a great deal of importance to certain things, and I am very cold by nature. And so the quacks descended, kind of. Um, you know, she took a bunch of quack medicine, main ingredient alcohol, which may have actually helped. Uh-huh. Also, um, celery, vanilla, and truffles she lived, tried to live on for a while before she made herself very sick. 
And not chocolate truffles. No. The mushrooms. <laughs> Melanosporum, you know, black truffle out of the ground. Hmm. Um, at least three miscarriages. Yeah. Who knows what was in the quack medicine? Seriously, mm-hmm. had she not been taking it? Maybe. Well, she would have loved to have a child with the king. You know, there was true love. At least for her. She's very happy with him. Madame Pompadour wrote, if it had not been for the king and how happy she was with him, she could never have endured what she called the wickedness and misery of Versailles. Courtiers never warmed up to her. I mean, by and large. I mean, she had her friends within the court, but you know what? Who cared, seriously, about people like this? Like, when the Dauphine died, the Dauphine is dead. But rather than be sad that she's dead, express sympathy, people got in a freaking slap fight about who got to put holy water on her first. This is the people we're dealing with. Because you can't expect them to like her. So who cares about them? And even the hairdresser got the, like, infection of snobbery, and she was polite to him because she's polite to everyone, and she said he did hair wonderfully, and where did he learn his trade? And he said, oh, I used to do the other one's hair. (laughs) Well, the Dauphin made no bones that he hated her. Yeah. But as he and his father didn't really get along together, yeah. didn't really affect her daily life. Um, more importantly, the daughters, of which five were living in Eversight at the time, pretended to like her in person, and then they talked bad about her to themselves, not to Papa, because they were too smart for that. Yeah, I know. But yeah, they would start scheming about how to get rid of her as soon as she left the room, which, if you've seen Sophia Coppola's Marie Antoinette, those aunts are these daughters. And they do the exact same thing to Marie Antoinette. They try to trick her into acting incorrectly so that they can mock her some more. Mm-hmm. Or that she can make a misstep. They've done this their whole lives, these daughters. Yes. So this is where it's they got the training for that. Yes, that's right. So no wonder the king liked to hang out in his petite cabinets with his petite frere and his and mistress. I would do. They were nice. Going back to, you know, you had talked earlier about how honest she was. She probably told them the way it was. Mm-hmm. without benefit of heirs. Well, she never stopped entertaining him. She viewed that as part of her job. She yep. had um, a couple little theater companies for years that staged these elaborate, well-done, rehearsed plays. I mean, these weren't these were amateur performances, but they were not amateurish. No, and they she would when she first started to do these plays, she would advertise for people who had some type of theater experience. They had to have done something. They couldn't just go, "Oh, that would be fun to do a play." I studied once, you know, when I was being tutored. No, 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 no. They had to have done something. And she put on these things, and he loved it, these plays. And she, of course, starred in them because that was something that she she loved to do. She was an actress. And the courtiers, although they mocked it, would, once again, fight each other for tickets. Right. It was a very small place yeah. where in it, the plays were performed, and... Yeah, not too many people would fit in. But, and she had her family. She had her people that were there. And then, you know, whoever else could get in. Even the queen. The queen, who you would think could just be like, I'll be there. Even the queen bargained for a ticket. Yeah. That shows you what the kind of relationship the queen and Madame Pompadour had. Yes. But ironically, this theater thing turned public opinion. Now, Versailles is already against her. Yeah. That's just the fact. But this theater turned public opinion against her, too. So now, not only the expense of all this crazy scenery, etc., now she's corrupting the minds of children, and actors aren't even allowed to take communion. They're sinful, satanic people, and she's making these, making our king into an actor. Oh, as if he weren't an actor. All no, no kidding. <laughs> so, um, you know, everything started to be, I guess, like Papa, like Daughter, 
She was a scapegoat for pretty much anything that went wrong. The the War of Austrian Succession, in which Marie Antoinette's mother became the ruler of Austria, in fact, people complained that the king hadn't been a good enough negotiator and didn't get enough for France out of that thing, and they blamed her. Now, wouldn't you think you'd blame the king? You would think. No. Really, you can't blame the king. <laughs> I guess let's, you'd get your head cut off. Yeah, if yeah, you blame that's the a king. bad plan. Yeah, so let's... so I'm just saying, like, even matters of major diplomacy mm. all rolled downhill and hit her, evidently. So just like when public opinion turned against Marie Antoinette, um, little cartoons and little poems started to circle, and they were called Poissonades because of her maiden name. Mm-hmm. And one author of these works of meanness was the Comte de Maurepas, who'd been friends with the king since he was a child, and he thought, I am immune. From any of this, anything anybody can do to me, I've been friends with him since we were children. This ridiculous upstart has nothing to do with me. Au contraire, do you really want to start this? No. Do you? You don't. <laughs> no. So she would come into a room, into a meeting, and ask that a decision he had made, of Morapas, you know, mm-hmm. decision, be reversed. And then the king would look at him mildly and say, do as Madame says, please. Whoa, snap! Or she would come into a room and she would look right at him. Right, I love this, man. You don't play with her. She would look right at the Comte de Maurepas and say, Monsieur, you're boring the king. Good day. And he'd have to get up, get his crap, and leave the room. Yes. <laughs> so who has the power? Uh, Jack? Yeah. 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 Exactly. But then he got grumpy and wrote this horrible poem suggesting um, that she had diseases and she was a witch and everything. And she was so upset and actually kind of shaken so badly that she had another miscarriage. And the king banished his childhood friend, the comte, not only to his estate, because he said, no, I could probably still smell you uh-huh. if you're there. You need to go farther away so I don't lay eyes on you again. Go to your other estate, even further. You're not even allowed to go to this one. Get out. Bye. Goodbye. He's gone. Yeah. And so, basically, the king and his mistress closed ranks. Mm-hmm. He, no new friends came but through her. If you wanted something, you had to go through her. You had to stand in her presence now. There's no sitting. Once she pulled aside a young writer and had mentioned how much she liked his writing, just a casual, oh, monsieur, blah, 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 I liked your writing. Nobody even heard what she said, and all of a sudden, all the courtiers wanted to shake his hand, and, hey, you need to come visit me at my estate, and sucking up, man. Yeah, big time. And people that are talking about her behind her back. Yeah. And yeah. she began to we, as in, oh, we'll see, we shall see you later this year. Won't you come to us later when you pass by? <laughs> she began to we. She began to we. <gasps> we, we, we. We, all we, we, we. All, yeah. <laughs> She's the wife. Mm-mm. Well, yes, she is. That is yeah. very wifely. But she did have some friends she confided her private worries to. There was a lady named the Marquise de Mirepoix. She confided some private worries about, like, oh, I just really, you know, the bed thing, and I'm nervous that there's going to be someone coming up, and her friend said, he's used to you. He doesn't have to explain anything with you. He'll never be bothered to make a change. Princes are creatures of habit. Don't worry. It's kind of good advice. It was, and... She began to develop so many aspects of her relationship with him, um, she wanted to make him dependent on her friendship. And he valued her opinion, too. It wasn't just one-sided, but she really was kind of scrabbling for a toehold. Um, because five years of amour is turning into something different. And she's determined to strategize to keep her place in his mind, to keep her place at Versailles. This is the life she wants. You know, if not in his heart, if not in his bed, at least in his respect, in mm-hmm. his mind. Mm-hmm. So, 
She made this announcement. From here on in, the king and I are on the best terms of friendship. There is a rumor about this time that perhaps her doctor had said, you know, too many miscarriages. There's something wrong female-wise, and you need to stop with this sleeping with. Or maybe there was some physical reason why she yeah. couldn't. Don't so, know. Yeah. Wasn't there. Nobody knows, but she announced it as if one would announce that a prince had been born. We now She wrote the Pope to just explain this. Yes. By the way, I'm just going to send a little note to the Pope That's explaining right. that my boyfriend and I are now just friends. Right. But the best of friends. Not just friends, but we're just something special. Yes. Yeah. I mean, she actually went as far as to replace a statue in the garden that was called Amour with a statue of herself called Amitié, which means friendship. So clearly we have changed our status to single. I think this is a good time for us to take a little break. And when we come back, we will go through the end of the life of Madame de Bombadour. The History Chicks are brought to you by Audible.com, the world's leading source for audiobooks with over 100,000 titles across all kinds of literature. For listeners of this podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download to give you a chance to try out their service. To accompany this podcast, we recommend The Sun King, Louis XIV at Versailles by Nancy Mitford which will give you a great background on the formality that Madame Pompadour and Louis XV lived with every day. To receive your free audiobook download, simply follow the Audible ad on our website, thehistorychicks.com. And we are back. So all was as friendly as could be. But now now the ladies kind of lined up. Madame de Pompadour had to put up with it. If she didn't want to sleep in his bed, someone was going to. And so she wanted, she was not the director of this house, as some people have painted her. She had nothing to do with it other than just allowing it to exist. But there was a place called the Parc aux Cerfs, which means Deer Park. Well, let's just say Deer Park. So at Deer Park, these lower class, beautiful girls were housed there. It's in the town of Versailles. Just this revolving door of poetude. <laughs> oh my. She does not run it. She no. just allows it to happen. Yeah, reluctantly I think. Yes. Now there was one that gave her a little bit of fear. Her name's Louisa Murphy. And she lasted two years. She was the longest lasting person at the Deer Park. Um, and she made a mistake. Because she was not good courtier. And she goes, how's it going with the old lady? Meaning Madame Pompadour. Mm -hmm. She was gone next day. That's all it took. And other than the bedroom position, everything was there just as before. They were good. This intrigue, by the way, just kills me. All these cats at Versailles sensed weakness, and they're like, this is the moment. we got to push right now, or she's going to be there forever. And her own cousin, that one that she had come live with her to be her companion, this best friend, first tried to sleep with the gang. Okay, when that didn't work, she put this beautiful puppet and wanted to be the puppet master, you know, in his bed. And she told that girl, okay, now part of the deal is, if you're going to sleep with him, he's got to dismiss Madame Pompadour from court. Because Louis was susceptible, too. Mm -hmm. And they knew how to run him, you know, like, here's what to say, yeah. or whatever. Would have worked, but this honorable relative of this little loose woman took a letter to the king in which she boasted, Neener, Neener, I'm getting rid of the old lady. Ha ha, her time is over. And somebody brought him that letter, and he was so angry, it was a, another swath of dismissals. Goodbye, everyone. Get out. See ya. You can't mess with her. No. 
No, she had she had power over him, but he allowed it to happen. I think it's yeah. loyalty to his mm-hmm. friend. He yes, he's that's like, a good way to put it. Loyal. Yeah, he loves her definitely. He doesn't allow anyone to treat her badly. And that's not, not about love face. of the flesh; it's love no. of the heart. A tragedy happens when she is thirty-three. Literal Alexandrine is ten years old. Mm-hmm. Um, it's Madame Pompadour's only child, and she died of appendicitis at the age of 10 before her mother could get to her. We always hate it when the kids die. She was completely prostrated with grief. So normally the king was very uncomfortable with any kind of strong feelings, but this is a a definite illustration of how much he loved her. He spent three, four days sitting beside her bed holding her hand as she was so sad. He didn't didn't leave her. He stayed in there. Mm -hmm. He would sit on the edge of her bed and pet her hair, or he would hold her hand and... That makes me feel a little sad, but that's an... And, but it says a lot about her because she she came back. I mean, she didn't just wallow in it, I guess. Yeah, well, I mean, she began this rebranding campaign. So acting, mm-hmm. you know, don't know. She became more pious. Mm-hmm. She became more respectable. Mm-hmm. And then... Well, she's older. She's 35. <laughs> just not that old. <laughs> well, when you start really young... I guess that's true. We were 15 years in. Well, she became lady-in-waiting to the queen. Right. Um, you know Versailles. This is the highest position possible. And now she has this top post in both sides of the palace. She's the best friend of the king. And she's a lady-in-waiting to the queen. So she was beginning to be referred to as the prime minister. Not only did she have influence over the king's daily behavior, and now she has stepped out on a world stage. Now, I can link you to a site that will better explain the Seven Years' War, which we call the French and Indian War here. But here is your Seven Years' War 30-second summary. France backed the wrong horse, the king got spanked, and Madame Pompadour got the blame. The end. Well, that was like the five-second summary. Well, okay, here's a little (laughs) bit longer. It's a chess game. There's no defined rules because you know what was involved here? It's colonial politics. This isn't just, hey, my neighbor's making me irritated. It's like far-flung places, exotic places like Quebec were in play. I'm just saying. (laughs) Um, Louisiana. I mean, at the time, okay, so Spain got Louisiana from them. Disastrous. Quebec was lost to Britain disastrous. A lot of other things vanished. That is bad. Along with most of the money in the treasury. Also extremely bad. One soldier was quoted as saying, poor posterity. What will you understand of all this? What a booby truth will make of us. That's true. Because it was like bumbling doofus war on France's side. And that was a very bad PR for had they won, she would be exalted. Oh, you know what I mean? But Sure. And you know what? The stress just killed her. Madame Pompadour was hardly ever in good health from now. She was easily fatigued. She would cry in private to the point where she would make herself sick. This really, this debacle made mm-hmm. her so sick. She felt guilty. She felt sad. She felt embarrassed and grieved for her friend the king, whose popularity had gone from, you know, an all-time high it, he was in the toilet. So to cheer her up, the king showed her these plans he'd made, because you know it worked for him, and he thought, well, I know, we'll do some architecture, won't that be fun? And so he came up with these plans for a little building that is now famous called the Petit Trianon, and he was going to build it for her, to cheer her up. 
oh, don't worry, it's just a little war. We just lost, you know, half of our colonial holdings. Let's build a little building. It'll be great. She never did see anything but the outside walls of it. By the way, it um, fell to another young lady, Marie Antoinette, to receive the benefit of this gift, but the intentions were good. <laughs> One of her friends wrote at this time that she was so suffocated by her own power that I came away feeling that death is the only refuge she's got left. You know, she was obsessing and sad, and she just couldn't get away from herself. She went downhill fast, and she really tried to delay her last confession. Because what does that mean if you confess? You have to be done. So she she had to, she had knew that it, once she confessed, she would have to sever her relations with, with the king. Because you can't taunt God and go backseas when you get better. Like, oh, I didn't, I didn't mean it. I'm not, like, that sorry right. that I slept with him, and um, we're just going to hang out somewhere if that's cool. No, you can't. No. Yeah. And so she, she held out for quite quite some time. Actually, I think it's kind of interesting. That one of the most famous portraits of her was begun just days before she died. It's her doing needlework, and it had to be finished posthumously. It's funny that that shows that um, it shows the needlework, because earlier portraits of her would um, picture her with jewelry or... Lounging on a settee and yeah. lots of décolleté showing. And in this one, she's got... A little kerchief on her head. <laughs> I'm saying kerchief. She's doing needlework, and she looks very matronly, I would say, very grandmotherly, very dignified, um, surrounded by the things that she loves. Yeah, that was part of the rebranding. Yeah, and yeah, and they had to finish the painting. After. Respectable friend of King <laughs> with lots of clothes on. <laughs> um, but at the age of 42 in 1764, um, she finally did make her final confession, and she died probably of lung cancer. And I was thinking about that, because I didn't think tobacco use was that prevalent then, but the thing is, I was looking into the um, talc that everyone used for their hair, because you know there's been other cases of lung, I'm like, where is all this lung, lung cancer, cancer coming right. from? And I was wondering, idly, if inhalation of hair powder might have contributed. Type of carcinogen in the hair powder. Mm -hmm. But here's the interesting thing. Where did she die? She died in Versailles. And she's not of royal blood, and that is verboten. They had to get her body out of out of there as quickly as possible. It was like a makeshift stretcher, and they, like, jogged her out of there with some random sheet that wasn't big enough, just kind of thrown over the top of her. I don't know what kind of juju they thought was coming out if people died there. It was just a definite, it was a very big superstition that could not be broken. So she was taken out. She'd already violated it by dying. But you know what? She'd already violated it by living there. So more of the same. So um, the day of her funeral comes, and it is very bad weather. Um, the king has not slept since she died. It's been three days. And he was looking at her cortege coming out and getting prepared. And it was raining on her. And he said, sadly, the Marquise has poor weather for her journey. And he stood on the balcony in the rain. And he watched that cortege until it was gone. And he was just crying and crying and crying. And he turned to his companion on the balcony and said bitterly, And that is the only tribute I'm allowed to pay to my friend of 20 years. He was very sad. Yes, I think so. Let's just end her life by giving a quote from Voltaire himself about her. He wrote, Born sincere, she loved the king for himself. She had soundness of spirit and fairness in her heart. We will all miss her terribly. So what legacy has she left? 
She left the encyclopedia. Which I love this. <laughs> she went and bucked up against the king, who was like, oh, we don't need an encyclopedia. And she encouraged the writing of the very first encyclopedia, which is kind of... And it was lots of contributors. Specialists would write articles. It sounds a little bit like Wikipedia. Wikipedia. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. I don't subscribe to the veracity of, of such. Of, but yeah. Wikipedia is good if you know stuff. Like... I can't tell you, there's been a lot of times that we research, 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 and then I look at Wikipedia, and they're pretty accurate on some things, but you don't know until you actually do the research yourself. So, anyway. Yes, but in the encyclopedia, which the king was totally against, by the way, Mm -hmm. they were having an argument about gunpowder at dinner, and Madame Pompadour looked at him with her little sparkling eyeballs full of mischief and said, too bad you've disapproved of the encyclopedia because we could look that up right now. And then he looked at her and she looked at him and there was a little battle of eyeballs and then he like hung his head down and he goes, I have a copy in my room, go get it. And she smiled triumphantly like, yes, I know, and now you've admitted it in public. I'll be right back. It was so super cute. So it was just like they were... In love, old yeah. couple, just yeah, adorable. Totally. So yes, that is a great legacy. I love that. Yeah, that's a good one. Now a non-good legacy, considering events that happened after the peace treaty between Austria and France, can be largely attributed to her efforts. That treaty led, and yeah, just the, the Seven Years' War debacle came out of that. It did pave the way for Marie Antoinette. Once again, bad or good, I don't know, to come into the country, too. So that's a legacy. That's that a, yeah, that's very One way or the other. And on a happier note, though, she was a patroness of the arts and commissioned works by innumerable artists in lots of different materials. In fact, she backed Sevres porcelain mm-hmm. to an extent where the king would have these, like, Tupperware parties in his room, and everyone was encouraged, I quote, to voluntarily... Buy some porcelain. Mm-hmm. So here he is having one of those sensi parties in his room. Um, it would have been a good investment had you bought a set base for 25 bucks. Oh, yeah. No kidding. So it did flourish because she, and through her the king, backed it. One of her palaces actually became the factory, the set factory. That's how mm-hmm. much she loved it. Um, she also was responsible for the Ecole Militaire, which is to... Um, raise 500 little boys from 8 to 18 and give them commissions in the army, basically a military academy like West Point or something. Mm-hmm. Um, Napoleon, 20 years after she died, actually went through that school. So is that a good legacy or not? Mm-hmm. So what do we do? Links? Books? Sure. Sites? There is actually, there is a madamedepompadour.com. <laughs> and of course there is. And of course there is. There's one for everybody. But this uh, will link you up, obviously. But it's got lots of information, lots of things that we talked about, but links to other articles and miscellaneous. The one I really thought was kind of neat was just the, the miscellaneous links to things that are just associated with her name, dolls and clothes and furniture and jewels and animals and flowers, because there was a pompadour pink associated with her. Yeah. Also, um, the Steph Porcelain has a uh, museum of porcelain, mm-hmm. so we will link you up to that. And it actually has many examples of porcelain from different eras, so that's kind of interesting to read. There's also a Doctor Who episode. <laughs> if you're not familiar with Doctor Who, it's basically some time travelers have gone back to Madame Pompadour's and hijinks and Sue. And it's pretty cool and if you don't want to watch the video which you actually can see on youtube we'll provide you with a link where you can just read the summary of the whole episode it's quite interesting to think about you know travelers from the 51st century or whatever go yeah. back to madame pompadour's, pompadour's time yeah. it's very interesting it, 
It is. And I was actually shocked that there's not any movies in English surrounding this woman. I, I was I was like, oh, there's got to be a movie. This is a very dramatic life that she led. No, there's one, and it's in French. But that's it. <laughs> so any people out there with uh, contacts to pitch movies, I think you have a big opening. Yeah, this is a very, I mean, just the very dramatic life that she led. The power that she wielded. Behind the scenes. Yes. As to books, I will tell you, individually, there are no biographies that either of us really found so engaging that we want you to run out and buy them. We took pieces from quite a few biographies. And I tell you, why don't we just link those in the show notes? Fair enough. But there are two books that you need to stop this podcast and buy them. Okay. There is a book I've recommended before, and I recommended it in hardcover. And now that it's in paperback, you have no excuse. There's none. It is Tony Spofford's Versailles, A Biography of a Palace. It has got floor plans. It's got stories. It's got basically, it's the Blu-ray of Versailles books. Um, and I believe it is, anyway, I think it's definitely under yes. $15. It used to be a $30 book, but now it's accessible. The other book which is not a biography, which actually does not have Madame Pompadour as a main character, but will definitely give you the flavor of Versailles, is a historical fiction called To Dance with Kings by Rosalind Laker. And go and get that book. It's all about a peasant girl named Marguerite who ends up um, being a mistress to someone in the nobility, and Renette does figure prominently as a subsidiary character in that extremely long book. But I would recommend that you buy that, too. And I can't actually say that I read this one, but I was doing my research, and one of my very best in-real-life friends came up, and she said, oh, I'm just reading this historical fiction book about that particular era, and Madame Pompadour plays a role in the book, and she said, and it's very good. So this is on Melissa's recommendation, but um, it's The Philosopher's Kiss by Peter Prange. Uh, like I said, I, had, I haven't read it, but <laughs> Melissa awesome. recommended it, so there you go. And for a quick overview of the whole Bourbon dynasty that is really compact, it is, um, gosh, if you don't include the index or the bibliography, it is just about 200 pages. It's pretty accessible. It's called The Bourbons, The History of a Dynasty by J.H. Shannon. But it's really good. There's a tiny little chapter, of course, on Louis the Fifteenth, but... If you just want to get a quick overview, like, who was who again? Who is the Sun King? Who is this? Flip, 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 flip. It'll be good. It's like Cliff Notes for the Bourbons, and it's really good. Bourbon Cliff Notes. We have learned a lot. We didn't know. We did not know she was so influential politically. No. And now we do. Yes. And I hope you do, too. Yep. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you next time. Bye. For show notes and links to the things we talked about today, please visit us at thehistorychicks.com. Follow us on Twitter at The History Chicks with an X. X. Or like us on Facebook without an X. If you'd like to in real life, please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on iTunes. The music in our podcast comes courtesy of Music Alley. Visit them at music.mevio.com. It was meant to.